This insert is brought to you by Radio K Pulpit, 7 to 9 a.m. Please visit kpulpit.co.za. Good afternoon, good evening, all our listeners. So good to have you with us today. And uh, it's once again time for a program where we talk about realities, uh, restoration and redemption in the face of addiction. And as we had said last week, the theme for our month is breaking denial so that there can be change. Um, And we've found that with many of our clients uh, that we have counseled, Uh, with many of the folk that we have spoken to, um, that breaking denial is actually the the starting point of a healing journey and a journey of restoration and redemption. And um, so we are very privileged this afternoon, uh, this evening, to have Gert Moelman with us. He's a counselor and has been doing counseling for a long time. And he also has a background of an addiction. And I think he will probably tell us a little bit more about that. Um, Gert, very, very welcome um, to Into Me See as you allow us to see into you and you to see into us. And this is what we are all about. Welcome, Gert. Wow. Thank you so much uh, for the welcome, um, and it's such a privilege to be here and to see what God uh, does in this space for us. Mm. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much um, for being with us, and um, we hope that the, and we trust that the listeners will benefit um, as much as I will benefit from our share. Um, I like that about our uh, program is that it is a conversation. We uh, strive to be authentic, and we strive to be real. And that is why we speak about the realities in our lives. Gert, um, give us a little bit of a background of of your addiction story. Thank you, Frederick. Um, yeah, like I said, my name is Gert Moorman. And, um, well, briefly, uh, I'm one of four children. I grew up in a Christian home and a well-loved, well-balanced household. Um, but there was soon a feeling on my side that, um, I, I don't know, you often hear people say that they felt different. And I always felt that I needed something else or uh, needed to use something to feel different, that I didn't fit in. Mm. And uh, that soon materialized uh, when I tasted alcohol for the first time. It almost felt like this is the answer. Um, in retrospect, I think it was uh, because of a fear of kind of a disconnect from, from God mm. that I'm looking for something else to fill that void. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Mm. I, I was just thinking you said something that uh, caught my attention. You felt mm. you didn't fit in. Where did you not fit into? Oh, kind of everywhere. I would be in a crowd and feel alone mm. and um, feel different, uh, separated. Um, so that kind of set off years of, of chaos um, with alcohol, starting mainly with that. And, uh, you know, with the alcoholic, um, you 
there's only basically two ways to see if if it's if it's the, the trait is alcoholic or not, and that is when the person tries to stop mm. uh, and finds he can he or she cannot, or when the person starts drinking, they cannot determine the amount mm. that they will mm. drink. Mm. And I have certainly qualified for both mm. for years and years and years. Uh, that also led into experimentation with drugs. And um, to cut a long story short, I'm sure we've all heard a lot of addiction stories, but suffice it to say, there was the broken relationships, the the tension um, at home and social environment, uh, at work, uh, with myself, with my belief system, mm. until I got to a point of absolute, um, I felt like a, a, a hollow person. Um, so... That's about the background. I, I don't know if we should go into that much detail, but it was it was uh, a journey of about two decades where I tried all measures, human measures, mm. to manage my consumption or to stay away from it, um, but with the emphasis on, on human measures. And mm. we'll probably talk later on how the change came about. Yeah, I know. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to do that. As, um, how it went, yeah. Ghed, I'm still interested in uh, uh, your family of origin because, um, you know, we know that our families of origin, and I say we because I also come from a background of uh, sexual addiction, a process addiction, and and our families of origin play a very, very important role in um, shaping us and forming us um, to experience certain things. And often there is something in the family of origin that uh, takes us into this feeling that we need to medicate or we need to cover up or we need to numb. Um, yeah. what, what was that in your family of origin? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, I don't have that, let's call it a luxury, to say that there was a dysfunction in my family. That's mm-hmm. not the reason I ended up in a, um, a cycle of addiction. Um, I remember when I was six years old, we were on holiday, and um, there was an incident where my father noticed people using drugs, and he called all four children and pointed it out. And I've checked with my siblings. They all remember this. I was five or six years old. Mm. My siblings remember this as a warning. My father said, if you ever get involved with drugs, this is where you'll end up. Mm. I didn't see it as a warning. Mm. I was immediately drawn to it. Yeah. yeah. So it was not because of this. A lot of people, yes, those things do contribute. But I started drinking because I was primarily uh, had an addictive nature, not because of an external um, circumstance, Mm, mm, mm. although they do contribute. If, yep. they, if they're present in people's lives. Mm. So the, uh, you say, very much like myself, there's a, an, a tendency uh, for an addiction. Um, it's almost inbuilt oh. into us. And um, and often this actually comes all the way from birth. You know, uh, Patrick Carnes is one of the people that had a, an important role in my recovery and in, in my journey. Uh, the, from the books that he read and the courses I did uh, with with counselors, and he says the the intimacy disorder or the potential for an addiction is laid into our lives from the age of zero to about five to seven, 
and uh, and and that is why I ask, you know, do you rem- know of anything or remember anything that could have contributed? Oh, it rings quite true. But like I said, in my case, it was always this curiosity mm. Uh, mm. that I was drawn to things that uh, uh, risky behavior, things that make me feel different and so on. So when when would you say, if you look back, um, when did the actual addiction start? When did the addiction start? Um, I think the first time I tasted alcohol, um, I was less than 10 years old, and I was like, wow, this is the answer. made me feel completely different. So uh, at that stage, you said six years old? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah maybe so, eight years old. So. so eight years old, uh, the exact year is not so important. Um, what is it that you were feeling you were medicating or or numbing? What was that feeling that you oh, were numbing? At that stage, I was so young. I mean, I wouldn't say the addiction started then. I would say uh, I drank at 16 years of age and 18 years of age. I only then had a couple of beers and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. not like I started drinking a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I drank for about 10 years like everybody else, I, I thought. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the addiction started setting in about 8 or 10 years into you know, party life where young mm. people go out and cry and things like that. I think it only set in then. But having said that, uh, without having to contradict myself, I think it was always present. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. You were pointing out that, that we're talking about denial. And um, I think my um, what happened was when my denial changed um, and the shape it took was certain prominent people in my life uh, would point out, like my father and one of my pre- the previous people I worked for, almost verbatim repeated the same question to me and said to me, when are you going to do something about your drinking problem? Mm-hmm. And my reaction to both people and my reality was, I don't have one. I don't have a drinking problem. And if, if you had to put a lie detector test on my arm that day, it would have shown that I was talking the truth because that was my reality. Mm-hmm. I believe that I do not have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a couple of years, uh, well, about 15, 20 years fast forward until I realized I have a disease called addiction. I, I'm suffering from a disease and I'm starting to look at the truth about addiction and I start realizing, oh, I do have a drinking problem. Mm. Put a lie detector test on, my, on me now, it will show the complete opposite, which means that as far as denial is concerned, my perspective changed. The mm. facts remain exactly the same. But it's almost like I just moved around and looked at it from another angle. And I think that summarizes the whole recovery process. Yeah. Is to discover the the lie that I used to believe for so long. Sure. Chet, um, we are having such a wonderful discussion. Mm-hmm. But let's take a break for um, a, a little while. And then after yes. the break, we'll continue. Welcome back, listeners, and um, probably have heard that my lovely partner, my dear wife, is not with us today. So we're giving her a bit of a break, and uh, we're having some man-to-man discussions. This uh, Mano, mano. <laughs> some man-to-man discussions yeah. and uh, conversation. 
So uh, very, very welcome back, listeners. And uh, we're going to be continuing with our discussion with Gert on um, denial and what what does it mean to break denial and to start changing. Gert, you were sharing with me a little bit about, um, you know, you were in denial. So I I just like to know what were the things that in your mind or in your heart or whatever uh, prevented you from breaking that denial. In other words, you said I don't have a problem. That is obviously uh-huh. denial. But what were the some of the reasons that you had to say that I don't have a den- um, a, pro- a drinking problem? I I think it, it centers around the fact that I felt I couldn't allow people to see into me. Mm. Um, the mm. fear was always that. Any day now, someone will see through the facade. Um, you know, the alcoholic lives a double life. Mm. There's a lot of lying happening. Yeah. Um, you need to cover up one lie with the next, and then it just becomes very complicated. And that kind of led to social and spiritual disconnect for me. Mm. I, I didn't understand God's promises at the time, that he will never leave me, that he will never forsake me. Mm. So I basically felt a compounding guilt and shame um, I tried, um, but felt no intimacy with God at the time. Mm-hmm. So that led to more fear and obviously then more drinking. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So so I hear there was um, lying was one of the um, strategies as such, uh, almost a default strategy of avoiding to break the denial. And um, where do you think those lies, um, you were telling many lies, but that means that there were lies in your own head about um, the the drinking that you were doing? Well, the lies had their own reward. Um, The lies was to protect the pattern. The lies was to protect the addiction. Mm. And Mm. I was, I didn't really like the word functioning alcoholic, but I think I was because I was running a business and... For some people on the external side, it probably didn't look as much as as, as what was happening internally. I mm. was comparing my insides with people's outsides, if mm, that makes mm. any sense. Mm. And I always felt like I felt short. Um, the change came because of a, a, a des- desperate feeling, what a lot of people refer to as a rock bottom. Mm, mm. Um, and I like the concept of the gift of desperation, oh, which yes. spells G-O-D. It's like mm. it was... I was desperate enough, my ears opened up, <laughs> mm, and mm. I was ready to be helped. Um, and I believe the opposite of, it, of addiction is connection. Yes. That we, con- yes, we yes. are ready to connect with people. Mm. And we're saying, I have a problem, please help me. I will do anything to not have this life. And unfortunately, those phone calls I get are in the minority. Mm. Normally, mm. the calls I get is from the mother and the concerned family member that yeah. says, what can I do to help my child mm. and my husband mm. and, and so forth. Mm. Sorry, we're drifting a little no, bit no, away no, from no. your question. Not, but, not yeah. at all, not at mm. all. Um, that actually leads me to uh, the next uh, thought that I have is, while you were in denial, how did that affect your relationships and your intimacy? And, you know, in our program, we talk about intimacy with God, with others, and with yourself. So how did that pre-breaking denial, um, while you were in denial, how did that affect your relationships? 
and your intimacy. My relationships, yeah, and intimacy. Mm. Um, it had a destructive impact on on all relationships, mm. uh, beginning with the relationship with myself. I literally, after a while, couldn't look at myself in the mirror and flinched away in shame. Mm. That meant I couldn't make eye contact with, or didn't want to at least make eye contact with people around me. That led to a disconnect between me and and people that cared about me. Everybody could see that something was wrong, but they couldn't mm. put their finger on it. And I'm protecting this facade. And um, But most importantly, there was no intimacy between God and myself. Mm. I, I prayed. I read the Bible. Um, there was no connection because I was not giving mm. him my whole life. Mm. I was talking about help me with this one thing, help mm. me with that other thing. But um, that changed as we referred to earlier, when, when there's a gift of desperation, when yeah. you actually open up completely mm. and you say to God, here's absolutely everything, here's my whole life. In that instant, the the whisper went through my whole being and it said, it's over now. Mm. Mm. And I, mm. I then, at the moment, then thought that it was my father who passed away already, but now in retrospect, it's quite clearly it was the Holy Spirit that yeah. said that whispered, through my being, it was not audible, but I just knew it was over. Mm, and when you mm. then go into a battle with peace, it doesn't feel like a fight. Yeah. In, because you know there's victory in this. And uh, that that happened on uh, the 9th of August, 2006. And ever since then, um, if I press into God, He takes care of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a word that once again struck me. Um, uh, that was keeping you in denial, and that was shame. Um, so mm. one of one of my character defects um, with uh, with regards to the sexual addiction uh, was toxic shame. And um, the person that made that term aware uh, f- for me made me aware of it is John Bradshaw mm. in his book "Healing the Shame That Binds You." And uh, I, I truly can see how my toxic shame, that's how what he says the shame is, it's really toxic, how it prevented me from entering into a journey of healing and um, how big a role that shame played uh, in, my, in my addiction. Yeah. How were you, ex- yeah, how, how were you, you experiencing that shame? Well, like a friend of mine says, uh, healing starts when you bust the secret, when mm. you when you talk about that shame. Yeah. Um, but the enemy wants you to to not do that. Um, and um, shame dies on exposure. And I find mm. that when we reach out and we start talking about people uh, with people about it, um, it heals. But there's a concept in, in recovery that that's called uh, contempt prior to investigation. Mm-hmm that um, the ego says, well, prove to me this works. For example, the 12-step program. Prove mm-hmm, it to me, mm-hmm. then I'll do it. People that say that haven't hit rock bottom. Yes. Um, my shame, I think I've explained earlier, took the form of I couldn't face myself and people around me anymore. Mm. But what drove me through that, was, unfortunately, was more drinking and more discomfort mm. to get me to the point to be ready to ask for help. So it sounds almost like um, having that shame and constant uh, denial 
um, actually drove you to the point of uh, the gift of desperation, to the point of desperation. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in that point. You said the 9th of August in 2006. What brought you to that point where you said, it's done now, no more? So, as you said, the shame and the guilt is the the hidden gift that eventually gets you to the point to mm. say, this can't carry on anymore. Mm. Something has to change. But up to that point, the shame and the guilt, as strange as it might seem, had its, had its rewards for me. Mm. If I felt guilty enough and shameful enough, I could end, I could I could justify and go out drinking. Yeah. So all my character defects, my fear, my anger, my jealousy, my and, and shame and guilt is no different. All of these things that I think I'm a victim of has its own rewards. Mm. For the alcoholic and the addict, it has the reward of saying, "Oh, okay, well in that case, I, I deserve a drink," mm. and um, and then the whole cycle starts over again. Sure. Because as yeah. I pointed out in the beginning, the alcoholic cannot once the alcohol hits the system. A phenomenon called a craving sets in, and the alcoholic drinks to overcome the craving, mm. and it's impossible. Mm. It's impossible for the alcoholic to overcome the craving, so he just drinks more and more. It's a bottomless pate. Yeah, that's right. Um, how does the saying go? One is too many, and a thousand is never enough. <laughs> uh, but you know, you said at that point in August, um, things started changing. Um, what were the first changes that you noticed? In myself, mm. um, I would say uh, a sense, well, the, the first thing was a peace, mm-hmm. a serenity. There was just in that moment, it felt like I could breathe again. Mm. Um, just talking about it just brings that back mm. again. And um, there, there was an immediate sense of peace. And with that came came power. And I was listening, I, I did this course by John Bevere called Undercover. Yeah. And if there's one thing that I remember about this course, and this talks to your question, was mm. if I go under the cover of Jesus Christ, if mm. I go under the cover, it is a, it's, a, it's a humbling and a submitting action. But as you do it, you step into your power. Mm. It's not a weakening uh, action. I immediately, in that moment, uh, stepped into power, and the battle was already won. The, the old man died, a new one was created mm. instantly. I had to do the work, yes. I had to go through withdrawal symptoms of certain toxic drugs and things like that. That was my part. Mm. But God God already told me that it's over now. Mm. So I just did it. And the rest of my 15 years of sobriety has had that in common, mm. where I trust God and know that the good work that he started on me will be completed. Yeah. And it's busy, it's in progress, it's dynamic, it happens as, as we speak. Mm. Yeah. So uh, just for the final uh, um, thought before we, we end, unfortunately mm. our time is running out. Um, yeah. You know, there was a part that you played, and uh, you've also alluded to this already. What What change, um, what part did Christ play in, in these changes? In, in, you know, I mean, practically, how did, how did that happen? 
Thank you. Yeah, you know, to say what part Christ played to me is almost like disrespectful because he did everything. Mm. Um, I did, yes, I did a small part, but um, I remember a friend kept on um, complimenting me early in recovering, saying, wow, God, well done, you're looking so great, everything. And I felt uncomfortable <laughs> with mm. these compliments mm. until I realized that it's not you. It's not me doing this. All of a sudden, I'm able to do something like getting to healthy relationships, good jobs, and peace in myself for the first time in 20 years. How is mm. that possible? Mm. So then mm. I realized, suddenly realized that God is doing for me what I could not do for myself. Absolutely. It's part and, of our um, readings, eh? Yeah. And what God has part, if you want to call it that, is that um, I've come to realize that in our readings it says God is either everything or is nothing. Mm. What is my choice to be? So mm. I, I choose life. I choose life and I live in his service on a daily basis. And he, mm. he, he determines, um, he shows me his will for me, and then he gives me the power to carry that out. Yo, thank you so much, Gert, for um, We've had a wonderful discussion mm. and nice. a wonderful conversation. Yeah. And um, I really, really appreciate uh, the shares. So thank you very much, Gert, and uh, we're going to have the privilege of visiting with you next week again, and uh, we'll continue this very, very important discussion um, more from the experience uh, that you have as a counselor and with your counselees. And uh, so listeners, if you uh, maybe came in a little bit late on this uh, this, uh, program, um, please get to the podcasts at uh, Cape Pulpit or www.kpulpit.co.za forward slash uh, podcasts forward slash into me see. And uh, you can also listen to previous um, uh, podcasts or previous programs. And if you would like to listen to more of those. So keep uh, keep tuned in uh, to Cape Pulpit, uh, 7 to 9 a.m., and hear what God has to say for you and with you. Thank you very much, and see each other next week. This insert was brought to you by Radio Cape Pulpit, 7 to 9 a.m. Please visit kpulpit.co.za.